Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those that do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of the foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable for someone to bear up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that um, you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the him who judges justly. He, bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and, oversee, and overseer of your souls. And uh, this is the part that sort of um, hit me, you know. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by behaviour, um, without words, but by the behaviour of their wives. When they see the purity and the reverence of your, of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold and fine clothes, Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty and gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. But this is the way that holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted to their husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called, and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and the heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Morning, uh, my name's Carl, I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, it's lovely to have you with us. We've been working through uh, the book of 1 Peter for a few weeks, and we've got a few more weeks to go. Now, often when I uh, preach, I'm conscious that uh, there's probably one or two things that I will say that might offend uh, one or two people. 
Uh, that's because the Bible encourages, uh, not only encourages us, but it also challenges us and rebukes us. Uh, it challenges our worldview and the way that we think about the world and ourselves. And sometimes that challenge can be painful and confronting. But as I've been preparing for this week's uh, sermon, I've become quite conscious of the fact that there's probably enough things in this passage to offend everybody. Uh, that's because what God has to say to us here in this passage, I think, is really quite countercultural. It's almost everything here uh, grates against the way that we think about ourselves uh, and the world. And so there are things here, I think, that many of us will find quite hard to accept, quite hard to understand, maybe. But I'm also conscious that uh, the things that God has to say here are really important for us to come to terms with. Uh, and so I'm going to pray that as we work through this passage that God does that, that he'd challenge us, he'd convict us, that he'd bring us to repentance where we need to repent, and that he'd strengthen us to do his will. So let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we, um, we're sinners, Lord, and as a result of that, we don't understand ourselves or you or the world rightly uh, within ourselves. And we're influenced by what people around us think and say uh, we're influenced by the ways that we've been brought up um, we're influenced by our culture and by the media but lord we want to be people who are influenced first and foremost by your word by your purpose and plan for the world and uh, we're conscious father that the things that we're thinking about this morning confront us and the ways that we think about the world and ourselves. So we pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, confront us and humble us, that you would break down our opposition to your will uh, and that you would help us to live for you rightly. And indeed, Lord, not just to do it, but to enjoy it as the good design that you have for us and for the world. So, Lord, we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. So last week, when we were looking through 1 Peter, we looked at the beginning of chapter 2, where God tells us that the people who have come to him through Jesus are like a temple and like priests. Uh, they're like a temple in that wherever we are, God is with us, God meets us. And we're like priests in that wherever we are, we're serving in the presence of God, we're serving God in his presence. And we saw that that works its way out in two particular ways. Uh, living in the presence of God, constantly serving God, that works itself out in two ways. First of all, in us living sacrificially and in costly service to God. Uh, so as priests, if you like, as met metaphorical priests, we bring costly sacrifices to God. That's the first way. The second way that we live as priests is we declare the praises of God. We praise God for what he's done. We praise God to himself, to each other and to the world in evangelism. But here in this passage, there's a third way that we're introduced to in which we live uh, for the glory of God wherever we are. And, and that is, what we're looking at today. Peter says in verses 11 and 12, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day he visits us. So Peter says that the third way that we are to live as priests serving God wherever we are in the presence of God, the third way that we do that is by abstaining from sinful desires and living holy lives, by doing all that we can to live for God where he has put us. We're to radically put off sin, which is waging a war against us, and we're to live these lives of eminent holiness that glorify God. Now, Peter says that that holiness might actually cause more opposition. It might actually make people accuse us of things uh, and, and, and resent us. But nevertheless, Peter says, the hope is that on the last day, it will result in praise to God. So Peter seems to have two results that this way of serving God with a holy life, two ways that that can work its way out. The first way is opposition. And the second way is people actually coming to know Christ through our manner of life. Not, it's not that our holy lives converts people. We still need to tell people the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. But Peter says that one of the ways that we serve God wherever we are is living these holy lives, which then wins a hearing for the gospel. That our lives are to be so attractive because, after all, if we live according to God's plan and purpose, we'll be living in sync with how God made us. It'll just, it'll just make sense. And those lives will be then so attractive that people will be won to hearing the gospel. So that's the basic principle that Peter wants us to grasp. We live for God wherever we are serving him by living these radically holy lives. But he then goes on to point out in the rest of the passage that the way that we live these radically holy lives is not kind of by divorcing ourselves and taking ourselves out of the world. It's not by doing all these, if you like, super spiritual things. But in fact, the way that we live these holy lives for God is by living for God in the ordinary circumstances and relationships in which he's put us. And so in the rest of this passage that we're going to look at today, Peter goes on to talk about how we live in relationship to the authorities, the government and the powers over us, how we live in relationship to our employers and our bosses, and how we live in relationship to our families. And those are the key places where this holiness of life is worked out. It's not worked out primarily in the pews of the church. It's not even worked out primarily in the closet, if you like, as you read the Bible and pray. But this holiness of of, of life, serving God wherever we are, is worked out in the ordinary relationships in which God has put us. Our relationship to the authorities, to our employers and our work colleagues, and our relationships in our families. So we're going to think about those three things in turn. And first, Peter says, he spells out in verse 13 to 17, how we live in relationship 
to the authorities as we serve God. And he says in verse 13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him, to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. So Peter says that living out our lives in the presence of God means submitting to every human authority. Now, it's really important for us to remember that when Peter wrote this, the government of the day was not especially great. Uh, Their government, the government that these Christians were living under, was much, much worse than ours, than any government that any of us have ever lived under. It was utterly corrupt, it was horribly unjust, it was aggressively anti-Christian, and it was actively pagan. That is, the state actually promoted the worship of pagan gods. Imagine the worst political party in Australia. Uh, Imagine the worst political party in Australia. Imagine all their worst policies. And imagine those people having a majority at every level of government in Australia, at the federal level, at the state level, and at the local council level. Imagine that. The government that Peter was telling the believers that he was writing to that they ought to submit to was worse than that. And God says to them and God says to us, submit to those who have that authority. Indeed, God says here, do all that you can to submit to them in as much as you possibly can. Bend over backwards to do that. Because when you do, you honour God, who's put them in place, even put the Roman emperors in place, you'll honour God, you'll also silence the opponents of Christianity. Sadly, I think that's a far cry from how many Christians in Australia and indeed around the world live. Many Christians, sadly, do as much as possible, I think, to oppose governments that they don't agree with. Now, I'm not talking here about um, political argument, but about civil disobedience, that is, not obeying what the government has commanded us to do. Many Christians do as much as possible to oppose governments that they don't agree with. Now, clearly God is not saying here that we ought to submit to governments when they tell us to do things that are against God's commands. The government tells us to bow down to another god. We ought not to do that. The Roman governments perhaps were enforcing that in the early uh, time of the early church. Peter wasn't saying to the people that they ought to bow down to foreign gods or go to the local temple. But we also need to realise that much of what governments and authorities tell us to do does not conflict with our allegiance to Christ. Most of the time, what governments tell us to do just conflicts with our personal opinion about the way that the world and the country should be run. 
But Peter says, don't use your freedom in Christ just to disobey the authorities when you don't agree with them. The government tells you to do something and you can't just say, well, you know, that's against what God is call- how God is calling me to live, therefore I'm not going to do it. Peter says, rubbish. Don't use your freedom in Christ as a cover-up for evil. Submitting to the authorities will mean, invariably, that we must do things that we don't agree with. We must do things that we don't like. And we must do things that we think are stupid and costly. So the government might have an economic policy that you think is profoundly stupid. And that indeed you might think will cripple the Australian economy. You can't just not do it. Submitting to the authority means, authorities means doing what they have decided to do. Even when we don't agree, and when we don't agree passionately and vehemently. As Christians, we often have a terrible habit of turning things that we don't like into issues of religious liberty. I can't possibly do that. It would conflict with my commitment to Christ. Rubbish. You just don't want to do it because you don't agree. Many issues are not issues of religious liberty but personal liberty. And we need to understand the difference. Let me give some current examples. Registration at premises in... uh, in obedience to the uh, requirements of the government with respect to COVID regulations. Some people have resisted the government's required to check in in various places using the COVID check-in app. In fact, sadly, some people have resisted that so passionately that some of the people even who serve in welcoming in our church have been harassed and upset by people's intransigent refusal to do what the government has asked us to do. But here's the thing. Checking in with a COVID check-in app is not a contravention of your commitment to Christ in any way, shape or form. You're not dishonouring Christ by checking in. You're not abandoning the gospel. You're not bowing down to pagan gods. Now, you might be afraid, rightly or wrongly, that the government will abuse your data and to use it to to track you, use it perhaps ultimately to persecute the church. But whether they do or not is actually profoundly beside the point. It doesn't matter. Peter doesn't say, submit to the authorities when you're sure there's no consequences for your life. He says, 
submit to the authorities. And don't use your freedom in Christ as a cover-up for evil. What if they're building a police state? Well, Peter's Christians lived in a police state of sorts. That doesn't give us the liberty to disobey what the government has commanded. If the government, however, said, if you want to enter a premises at the moment during these times in COVID, if you want to enter a premises, you have to undergo a Hindu ritual washing. In that case, you could object and say, no, my allegiance to to Christ trumps that requirement. But we cannot claim allegiance to Christ as a get-out-of-jail-free card to simply excuse our resistance uh, and our opposition to things that we don't like the government commands us to do. God has put governments in place. God even established the pagan Roman government. And God calls us to live for him wherever we are in costly, sacrificial ways by obeying the government, even when we passionately disagree with the decisions that they make. So that's the first thing. How do we sacrificially live for God wherever we are? We submit to the authorities. Next, Peter says, we suffer graciously in our workplaces. If you thought that was hard, this is hard as well. In verses 18 to 25, he talks about servants and masters. He says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but to those who are harsh. God sets the bar here for this priestly service very high. He says, you need to submit to those in authority in the workplace over you, not just when they're kind and they're good employers and good bosses, good supervisors, you need to submit to them even when they're awful, even when they treat you poorly. He says in verse 19, it's commendable. It's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. That is because they're doing it for the Lord's sake. That's actually a beautiful thing, Peter says to bear up under unjust suffering. He, he says, it's beautiful. That's what Christ himself did. Verse 21, to this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Christ was unjustly accused, unjustly convicted, unjust, unjustly beaten, unjustly executed. And Peter says he didn't retaliate. When he was reviled, he didn't fight back. When he suffered, he didn't unleash all kinds of threats. I'm taking you to court. I'm going to bring you down. He didn't say that. He just kept entrusting himself to God. And God says to us that that's the same kind of life that we've been called to live. What do you do, I wonder, when uh, you're mistreated in the workplace? Most of us, I expect, have suffered something like that at one time or another, or will suffer something like that. What, how do you respond? 
the easiest thing I think to do, the easiest way to respond, I think, is just to fight back, is to become angry and to want to win. We can fight back directly by being rude and abusive to our supervisor or our boss or whoever it is. We can fight back by deliberately not doing the job that they've asked us to do or not doing it very well. We can fight back by trying to sabotage the work of the company. We can fight back indirectly by complaining about the company to our fellow employers or our family or people outside the organisation. If our rights are impinged, we often try to win. And we try to win at all costs. But Peter says, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus who suffered injustice and didn't open his mouth. Peter says that honours God, actually. To be mistreated and not to retaliate and to accept it actually honours God. To suffer unjustly and not stand on your rights honours God. That said, I do think we need to be careful to understand that there, our society does function in different ways uh, sometimes to the way that Peter's society did. And we need to understand that to say that we ought to suffer unjustly, accept unjust suffering at times, doesn't mean that it's inappropriate ever to seek to deal with injustice that we might uh, experience. So there are protections that are available to us in our society that the government has put in place that enable us to deal with some of these things and it's not wrong to use those in the right way. So, for instance, if you're being underpaid by your employer and you seek graciously to raise that with them and they don't address that, it's not wrong to seek to have that addressed perhaps by the Fair Work Commission or whoever it might be. God isn't calling us here to, to ignore injustice, but he is saying that we, that we ought not to fight with bitterness and recriminations and that we ought to have a disposition that says, like Christ said, I am willing to be cheated and wronged for the sake of God rather than to get all that belongs to me. That is a higher value for me in my workplace to honour God in the example that I set in the way that I live rather than it is to get all that I deserve. Peter says that's actually a witness to people around you. It's a even a witness to the people who oppress you. And Miroslav Volf, a theologian, points out that actually this way that Christians lived was one of the things that ultimately led to the undoing of slavery. It wasn't, the, it wasn't calls to revolution that brought the end of slavery in, the, in, in uh, those early days, but it was... Slaves submitting graciously, 
It was those things in the long run that brought about the demolition of those unjust institutions. How do we live sacrificially for God? Wherever we are, we submit to the authorities, even when we passionately disagree. We suffer graciously in our workplaces, even to our own disadvantage. Finally, Peter says, we love and submit in our families. In this last section there in chapter uh, 3 from verse 1 to 7, Peter gives two sets of complementary commands, one to wives and then one to husbands. To wives, he says, be subject to your own husbands. Now, what does that mean? Peter explains what it means. Uh, He says it means to live a life of purity and reverence. It means cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit. It doesn't mean, sometimes it's helpful to say what something doesn't mean, it doesn't mean being a doormat. It doesn't mean never having a say. It doesn't mean never disagreeing over an issue. But it does mean not arguing I can make a distinction between arguing and disagreeing. It does mean not being bitter and resentful when you don't get your way. And it means being supportive rather than setting off in your own direction. In fact, Peter says that's the real beauty that women ought to pursue. It's so uh, beautiful, he says, that it's so beautiful and attractive and winsome uh, when a woman lives like that, when a wife lives like that, that a husband who is not a believer may even be won over by the truth. It's the same as what Peter was saying about living in submission to the authorities. Actually, uh, that, that behaviour, even though it costs us, will ultimately attract people to the, to the truth of the gospel. We're hearing for the gospel. And Peter says it's the same in, in a marriage. That, uh, that when a woman lives in this beautiful and attractive way, it can win a husband who's not a believer to the truth of the gospel. Now, our society uh, teaches us to prize exterior beauty. It teaches us to prize, you know, great hair, nice clothes, a great figure. But God here says that's not the highest value. It's not the greatest good. He's not saying that physical beauty doesn't matter at all. He's just saying don't treasure and prize that as the ultimate thing that you seek after, that you strive after. If you're a woman, don't value your physical appearance more than your godliness. It's, I think as a way of kind of thinking into that space, it's helpful to consider how much time do I spend on my physical appearance versus how much time do I spend on pursuing my relationship with God? And how much time do I spend thinking about the clothes I'm going to buy, trying on clothes at the shops or whatever it might be, or how much time do I spend doing my hair in the morning, getting myself, putting my face on, as my grandmother used to say? How much time do you spend on that rather than 
as opposed to how much time do you spend on personal godliness and cultivating a humble and a gentle, gentle spirit. That will show, to some degree, what it is that you prize most of all. What do you spend your time on? Peter says, prize that inner beauty. In fact, to call it an inner beauty is, is, is an injustice because that kind of character is not trapped inside, but it comes out in every circumstance of life. Peter says, prize that as the greatest beauty. And if there's an application here with respect to women, I think there's an application here for men as well, in the same sense, that is, men don't prize your exterior appearance more than your character. I don't know what it was like in Peter's day, but certainly more and more, physical appearance is pushed by our society for, for men as well. And so men, we must make sure that it's our character that we value, not what people think we look like. That matters. But also, I think, as men, we need to realise that if the thing that we prize most about women is exterior beauty, then that will be desperately unhelpful for encouraging women to pursue what it is that God wants women to pursue. If all men talk about is exterior, external appearance, then that will be what the women in our society and in our culture pursue. But if, as men, our greatest treasure is spiritual beauty and godliness, then it will be much more likely, I think, that women will be uh, eager to pursue that as well whether you're a man or a woman married or unmarried what is it that you value most highly is it looking good or is it a beautiful spirit so that's the first instruction the second instruction here for men is in verse 7 husbands in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. God calls husbands to treat their wives considerately and with respect. Uh, The reason is, God says, because women are the weaker partner in a marriage. Now, that's undoubtedly grossly countercultural to say, uh, and some people might find that deeply offensive, But we need to be able to listen, I think, to what God is saying to us here. What does God mean when he says that the wife is the weaker partner in the marriage? Presumably, it's speaking chiefly about physical weakness or a disparity, if you like, in physical strength. Science uh, has consistently shown that there is, on average, a significant disparity between the physical ability of men and of women. You can see that in the results of athletic events and stuff like that. The times, say, recorded for marathons for men versus the marathons for women. But that disparity in strength has a very dangerous consequence. And that is, it's much, much too easy for men 
to abuse their power and for women to feel threatened and intimidated by men. We've seen a significant recognition, I think, of that in the Me Too movement. That is, there's a growing desire to show that women have been wrongfully taken advantage of by men and threatened by men in powerful positions and also just in situations where they feel intimidated uh, by, by men. Women frequently say that they're afraid to walk home in the dark or that they get nervous walking past strangers or that they feel the need to lock the car doors at night. Why do they say that? It's because there is undoubtedly a physical disparity that causes concern and intimidation and that requires special care. Ironically and tragically, I think, feminism's attempt to deny those kinds of realities makes it actually very difficult for women to be treated with the kind of respect and gentleness that is required. So you can't say to men that women are the equivalent to men in every respect and if, that you, don't, if you don't treat them like that, you are sexist. You can't say that at the same time as saying women are more vulnerable than men, it's scarier for women in certain contexts than it is for men, they're intimidated in certain contexts by men because of their physical disparity uh, and they require special attention and we need to think about how as a society we're going to deal with that. You cannot hold both those things together. And indeed holding to that one, that is that there is no disparity, does not enable us as a society to address the very real problems that we are facing with respect to uh, abuse of women in the home and in the workplace. Our ability to address those things actually requires us, I think, to understand what Peter and what God is saying here, that there is a need for a special attention and concern of men, a recognition that it is much, much too easy for us to be intimidating and threatening. Peter's application, though, in particular, is to husbands. He says, husbands, because of that, you have a particular responsibility to treat your wives with gentleness and with love and respect. It's too easy for you to take advantage. It's too easy for you, because of your physical strength, or the perception at least of that, it's too easy to intimidate your wife. You need to be humble. You need to be gentle. You need to be compassionate and you need to love your wives so that they can submit to you in love and affection rather than in cowardly fear. And indeed, Peter says, if you don't do that, it will have spiritual consequences. It will hinder your prayers. It won't just destroy your relationship and your marriage and your wife it will destroy your relationship with God. 
These are hard things for us to face up to, but they're really important because this is what it means for us to live for God in the presence of God wherever we are in whatever we're doing. Whether we're living in society under the rules of authorities, God says we need to submit to them, do all that we can. Whether we're in the workplace and we're being mistreated, we need to set the honour of God above our own personal advantage. Or whether it's in our family life or even just our relationships with other men and women, we need to treat each other with godliness and humility and respect because that's the way that God will be honoured in our lives. Let's pray.